Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, who will be along shortly and is attending to patients. Maybe they even have COVID. We'll find out. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is a halo of light. So together, let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. And this episode will be heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, as well as Sirius XM Channel 130 on various podcast apps and on RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Now, we have done over 20 episodes on the coronavirus uh, epidemic, and I did some um, checking last night on our stats to see where most of our listeners are. And uh, not surprisingly, the number one city is uh, Fort Wayne. Indiana, where we're based out it, and second is Indianapolis, but number three, a friend of yours, uh, Paul Cieslak, who's waiting in the wings, Fargo, North Dakota, where Dr. Okay. Paul Carson lives, has a number three uh, listeners, Wichita is number four, and uh, Louisville, Kentucky at number five, followed by Denver, Chicago, and Omaha. Now, we have Paul Cieslak back with us tonight. Now, uh, Dr. Paul Cieslak is an MD and an MPH. He's an infectious disease specialist, graduated from The Ohio State University, also trained at the University of Washington and at, in St. Louis. Uh, in 1992 to 94, he worked for the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, as an epidemic intelligence service officer. And since 1994, he's been in Oregon in uh, various roles. And since July 2014, he's been the medical director for the Oregon Public Health Division's Communicable Disease and Immunization Program. So Paul has been on this for a previous episode. So I checked to see where are his listeners coming from. So Paul's listeners, again, mostly came from little old Fort Wayne, Indiana. But number two, Portland, Oregon. Followed by, again at number three, Fargo, North Dakota. So Fargo, we love you. Fourth, Omaha and fifth, Chicago. So Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with a question that a listener texted in. That is, my coworker touts that the false positive rate of COVID-19 testing is 80% due to the FDA's rush to approve tests. Is there any truth behind this statement? 80% false positives? No, I haven't seen anything like that. Uh, the test that has been out there the most is a polymerase chain reaction or PCR test that amplifies the nucleic acid in the viral gene. And it's thought to be highly specific. So we, we think that the, the specificity of this test is upwards of 99%. So explain what specificity means. Well, I mean, technically specificity is a answers the question, um, if you don't have the disease, how often will the, will the test be negative? So you know, we think that upwards of 99% of people who don't have the disease will, will test negative. In short, it, it's very rare to get a false positive test uh, with the PCR. Now, with antibody testing, I think it's likely to be significantly more common, on the order of several percent. And if you're testing a group of people that are very unlikely to have COVID, like let's say yes. you tested a random sample of the population with an antibody test, I think your positive there is as likely to be a false positive as it is to be a true positive. But the current test that's being used is very specific. Yes, we think so. Because you're checking for the actual, what, RNA in this case. Exactly. You're checking for the gene sequence of this specific virus. It shouldn't cross-react with other viruses, with anything in the human genome, uh, and even with other coronaviruses. And, and the same listener asks, how do you determine where to send your test to be evaluated? Well, you know, most of the time um, you're going to get your test in a doctor's office or uh, a hospital laboratory, and they have their referral patterns. I mean, they, they know where they're going to send the test. So it's not something that a, a John Q. Public, you know, a layperson needs to know. Uh, if you're a doctor's office and you're looking, where can I, can I get the testing, then you're going to want to look in your local area first, I think, because your turnaround time is likely to be much better. And, uh, and, if you don't have any local laboratories running the test, then you're going to have to look for one of the reference laboratories. Uh, Quest and LabCorp come to mind, ARUP uh, in Salt Lake City. But uh, they're kind of backed up because they're taking tests from all over the country and your turnaround time is likely to be several days. And then her, the last part of her question, and this is Brittany who's writing in, says, should we be more concerned with a false positive, a false negative, or equally concerned about both? 
Well, it depends what the context is. You know, again, if you're a public health agency and you're looking to test a broad swath of the population just to kind of get a guesstimate about how much disease is out there, then we're very concerned about false positive antibody tests, especially. Um, with, but if you're just a patient getting tested, uh, a false negative, I think, is more likely. Um, the, the, uh, the testing that we have is only about 70% sensitive, which means that, you know, of the patients that we think really have COVID, if you get one of those nasopharyngeal swabs and it's, you know, we, we think it'll pick up only about 70% of the, of the COVID cases. Now, that's not to say that it's not a bad test. It may be just that the virus is not present where you're looking for it. You know, it may be down in the lungs, but, but that, that's hard to reach. And, uh, and it may not be in the, in the nose and throat where you're usually hoping to find it. So, um, you know, with, with general testing, you know, we may be missing 30% of the cases. Okay, so very specific, but not as sensitive. Correct. Very good. Well, to end this first segment of the show, we always do that by asking a medical trivia question when we play on the radio. So this week, the question is, early in Holy Week, the United States have reported far more cases of COVID-19 than any other country. And in fact, New York State had reported more cases than any other country on earth, except these two countries. And in fact, by the time this episode airs, it may even surpass these two countries. What countries are they? And at the end of the show, we'll answer this, but we're gonna go do a break now and be back with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from Fort Wayne, Indiana and Redeemer Radio. We're back with the second part of our four-part show uh, with Paul Cieslak, who uh, is a infectious disease doctor. He works for the Department of Public Health in Oregon. And Paul, normally public health physicians like you are living in the background, not getting much noticed by the general public. But now you and what you do is front and center as experts, as people seeking your advice. What's the experience like for you? Oh, boy. Um there's a couple of different experiences. You know, one is at work here where um, we're constantly being asked to offer guidance on uh, protection of various groups of people. You know, do you have special guidance for uh, the police force, for healthcare workers, for daycare centers, for schools? Uh, and, and so we're constantly trying to take the scientific information that's out there and distill it into practical recommendations for people. So you're turning knowledge into wisdom. Oh, God willing, that's what we're doing. I hope <laughs> so. Um, and uh, as far as putting out the public information, you know, most of it is written. It's in the form of little uh, one or two page guidance documents for people, uh, sometimes quite a bit longer, actually. But um, occasionally we'll do video spots uh, that get posted to our website. You know, Dr. C. Slack answers questions about COVID-19. And uh, the, one of our own staff will be posing questions and, and I'll be answering them. Um, so that's, that's one uh, bit of public exposure. I guess another bit is, is uh, press interviews. Uh, so we'll, we'll occasionally be interviewed by uh, print media in Oregon. The big player is the Oregonian, which is the Portland newspaper uh, and local TV stations as well. Um, every now and then, uh, you know, I, I haven't been interviewed by a national outlet uh, regarding COVID-19, I think, because there's such a wealth of cases elsewhere. That, except for EWTN. Right, except for EWTN. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, occasionally we will get, if there's a big outbreak that's in Oregon and not elsewhere, we'll get Associated Press or uh, New York Times or uh, National Public Radio coming to interview us. So there's that, that kind of um, exposure. But the other kind I want to talk about is just is just friends coming up to you and asking you questions. And, you know, my mother was wondering and my, uh, you know, Fa family doctors her. get that all the time. Right. Exactly. People are always showing us rashes. I'm like, this is the grocery store. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and, you know, it's it's a privilege, isn't it? To, uh, to it is to be able to help people and, and answer whatever questions they have. What are the most important decisions that you have been part of for the good of the people of Oregon during this last month or so? Oh boy, that's a that's a great question. You know, we, we we've gotten asked about um, social distancing measures and what sort of things need to be imposed. I, I I think the thing that we've been more directly involved with, because a lot of the a lot of the measures are coming down through the governor's executive orders, 
and uh, and not directly out of the health department. But as far but doesn't as doesn't he get his information from you? Uh, she. Um, she. Sorry. <laughs> yes, I hope so. I mean, we're forwarding our information up all the time and 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 making it uh, available on our website. And we produce these situations status reports uh, and and governor briefings that go up. So uh, they're they're getting access to our information. But uh, where the rubber meets the road, where sort of how do you implement these social distancing guidelines or um, recommendations for uh, personal protective equipment or protecting yourself uh, in, the, in, in the actual healthcare sure. setting where you're, where you're having to employ it, they're coming to us for these things a lot of times. Um, if somebody has COVID-19, you know, when, when can you release them from isolation? What about transferring a patient from the hospital to a long-term care facility? What about when the patient goes home and how, you know, what do you, what do, you do to protect family members? Um, if somebody is exposed to someone with COVID-19, can they go to work? Uh, can they go to work as a healthcare provider? Uh, on and on and on. And we've had to uh, make judgment calls based on you know, sort of what we know about disease transmission, you know, when does it occur, how likely is it to occur, and the risk groups that, that may be exposed if, um, if, you know, if we release someone who has COVID-19 into the population. And it's a, it's a balancing act. It's really a combination of trying to bring the best science to bear. And it may be really dirty data a lot of times. But you don't always, <laughs> I mean, how often do you have the exact study that you want in order to inform a decision? Uh, so, you know, we, we have to apply it. And at the state level, you know, the, it's the state that has the public health responsibility. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control is in an advisory role for almost all public health activities. As far as I know, the only primary public health jurisdiction that CDC has is disease in navigable waters. So the cruise ships, yeah. So the the cruise ships belong to CDC, but everything else belongs to state health departments. So we're the ones who have to make the decisions about uh, even the military. Uh, well, no, they, they, you know they're a federal, they're explicitly okay. a federal agency, so they're kind of their own their own thing. But but that would be the Department of Defense and not the the Centers for Disease Control, who has excellent uh, point jurisdiction there. Uh, but if you call CDC and say, well, you know, I had COVID-19, am I allowed to go back to work? They're going to say, call your state health department. Got so it. The, the Subsidiarity. Kind of, <laughs> exactly. No, it's, it's a good principle. And, and so the buck kind of stops with us and, uh, and, and we have to make those decisions. Well, and Paul, one of the things I'm sure you guys have to do a lot is balancing different goods. And we were talking to economist Tim Reichert in another episode of Dr. Doctor about the tendency of politicians kind of to suppress business activity and social interaction as long as possible, just to be safe, so to speak. What are the public health risks of practicing social distancing for too long? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I see you know, everything that I deal with as a, a function of balancing risks and benefits. Uh, you know, the, nothing is free, everything comes with a cost. And um, if you're choosing to, to spend on on A, then you're not choosing to spend it on B. Um, we know that almost, almost every disease you can name that has been studied is more common if you are poor, if you are unemployed. Uh, you know, it, it is bad to be poor from a whole variety of aspects, uh, you know, related to health. And so I take seriously the, the fact that um, you know, these measures that are in place are, are putting people out of work. And long term, that, that is going to have health consequences. There, there will be uh, people who suffer severe health outcomes because of this. And, and at some point, we do need to weigh, um, you know, where, where are we doing? Are, 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 we, uh, are, are we really doing the best for people's health? Economic health and physical health are joined at the hip. I, I ran across an article today that I shared with you. It's a short one, but the title is provocative, and it's written by a resident of Manhattan, New York City, and the title is, We Cannot Destroy the Country for the Sake of New York City. He said he called and talked to a friend in Indiana, you know, where Andrew and I are, and, and said to her, is this the greatest crisis the country's ever faced? And he's thinking, well, we haven't been invaded since 1812, and we've never been occupied. And her reply in Indiana was, what crisis? She was in her backyard playing with her children, yet his life in New York City was at a bizarre standstill. It's almost like a, you know, a dystopian type of thing, like in the uh, 
old uh, Dark Knight Batman movies in New York. So he makes the point that it's not just the money, it's our way of lives are at risk by this continued suppression of, of just human activity, uh, of a way of life. So he, he is saying the whole country shouldn't be doing what it's doing just for the sake, in his words, of New York City. What do you think about his comments? Um, well, I, I have several thoughts about it. I mean, number one is I, I don't want to downplay the magnitude of this health problem. Uh, I do think when all is said and done, it will turn out to have been a few times as bad as an ordinary flu season. And, you know, from my public health perspective, an ordinary flu season is pretty bad every year. There are tens of thousands of people who die and, um, and, and that's not good. And, and, you know, it's kind of part of my life's work to prevent people from dying of, uh, of preventable diseases. So I, I don't want to underplay the seriousness of this whole thing. Um, you know, as far as Indiana versus New York, I mean, I, I think he's right. Uh, not every place is the same. I think that uh, different states and, and localities need to have the, the, the freedom to, you know, do what's best for their people to weigh the risks and the benefits uh, to their populations and, and to make decisions that are appropriate for them. You know, you, so, so I, Paul Carson sent around this uh, beautiful photo uh, last week, <laughs> you know, showed a uh, picture of the vast open expanses in North Dakota, and it said, North Dakota practicing social distancing since 1889. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. I think that's on target. I mean, you know, there are places where it's just going to be much less of a concern. Not everywhere has the population density of a Manhattan where um, really keeping yourself, keeping some distance between you and others around you is, is really gonna make a big difference. So uh, I, I think we need to keep this in perspective. And, and I think there's a false dichotomy that some have set up between health and economics. Um, they go together in a lot of ways. So are there other ways that, the, can you be more specific about health and economics going together. I mean, you mentioned that the unemployed uh, and the poor have more disease. Are there, can you be more specific than that? You know, poor people are more likely to smoke. They're more likely to use drugs. They're, uh, you know, their children are more likely to drop out of school early. Um, you know, they're, they're more likely to join gangs. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that any one person that, that, that they're destined to have these problems happen to them when they lose their job. But over the course of time, it, it erodes a certain amount of the social fabric that uh, reinforces healthy behavior. And, and, uh, and all of those, you know, sooner or later are going are gonna to spell increased disease. And, and, you know, ultimately people will die of those diseases. You won't be able to pin any one of them on, well, this happened to you specifically because right. you didn't have a job or you were poor. But, you, you know, you're, you, you will see elevated rates of uh, elevated mortality rates you know, in these in these groups of people. There was another provocative article written early on in the pandemic for our country by um, the editor of First Things, uh, Rusty Reno. And uh, he quotes the governor of New York where he lives as saying, I want to be able to say to the people of New York, I did everything we could. And if everything we do saves just one life, I'd be happy. That ends the quote. And then, and then Rusty said that, this is a disastrous sentimentalism. Everything for the sake of physical life. What about justice, beauty, and, and honor? And he goes on in other places to say, well, maybe the bishops have given in too much to the public about shutting down liturgies and churches and sacraments. How do you respond to, you know, Rusty Reno, who's saying that uh, he thinks it's sentimental to say that if everything we do saves just one life, I'd be happy. I, I think he's spot on on that. I, I think that is a sentimentalism that that uh, that is impractical. That that uh, the good Lord never expected us to take that kind of attack uh, regarding uh, anything else that we do. Uh, you know, we're, we're Catholic physicians, right? Uh, we all believe in the sanctity of human life and in the value of fighting to preserve it and and uh, make it comfortable and and. Uh, you know, help people be more functional and all that sort of thing. But we're also Catholic physicians who know that this life isn't all that there is. And, uh, and, and we don't want to lose sight of, um, you know, of, of the final goal. So we, we, we cannot take the tack that uh, we, we have to do everything to save one life. And, and let's face it, if we did, then automobiles would be banned. And every flu season, we would have to say we have to go on these social distancing 
you know, take these social distancing measures, uh, it, it would be completely impractical. And, it's uh, kind of the uh, helicopter parenting of governing, right? Right, right. You know, and, and the good Lord lived in this world and, and he, you know, he took it as, he, as it came. He didn't sort of say, I need to eliminate all suffering right now or all death or all disease. Uh, I, I think we have to do the same. Well, and you brought up Paul Carson. He brought up in an email chain we've been on this week that um, deaths due to accident per year are greater than that expected from COVID-19. In fact, he said there's about 162,000 accidental deaths each year, 65,000 poisonings, 40,000 motor vehicle accidents. And uh, he says, yet who says that we, we probably shouldn't purchase those cleaners or we shouldn't go up that ladder or we shouldn't drive that car. So can you ask, can you talk about risk mitigation versus risk suppression? Sure. I mean, again, in my world, and, and maybe it's because I'm in public health, and I think in terms of probabilities and, and uh, percentages and whatnot, but, I, but every, everything I do is a risk. I ride my bike to work every day. I think it's probably good for my heart. It's good for my long-term health. But every time I get on the bike, I take a chance that I'm going to get hit by a car and it's going to be all over. You know, you, you can't walk outside your front door without taking a certain amount of risk. So we have to weigh, you know, what am I getting out of, out of this versus um, what risk am I taking? And then, you know, and in, in the Catholic world, I mean, when we go, when we Catholics go to engage the rest of society, we're, we're always taking a risk when we do that. And, uh, you know, that, that's what we're called to do, I think. So uh, that, that's how I live my life. I, I really do, though, keep keep in mind or try to keep in mind the numbers. You know, is, is the risk something substantial? Is it risk, a risk that I'm willing to take in order to uh, achieve a greater good? You know, I think pe people tend to fear things that they can't control more than things that they can control. And uh, certainly the media can make a risk seem uh, larger than it is. Uh, I guess I'm thinking particularly in terms of uh, you know, what is the risk if you get on a city bus that something bad is going to yes. happen to you? I think those risks are, are very, very small, but I, I think your risk is pretty high if you never get any exercise and, and don't eat well and things like that. So you, you have to you have to have some sense of the actual of the actual risks involved. With and do you, do you think with the media in general now, not, not all media is as accurate or balanced as Dr. Doctor? But um, do, you, do you think the media in general is kind of helping or, or hurting this, this situation with the coronavirus? Yeah, um, great question. You know, the media can be very helpful because, you know, they've got the tools to get a message out. And if that message is truthful and, uh, and beneficial, then by all means, we want to get the message out. But it, it's important to remember that um, the media are in the business of of making money, of um, selling newspapers or, or uh, maximizing the number of clicks on an internet, internet website. And, and so they do have an agenda and their agenda is to, to get people to bite on, on the story, to get, to get people to read or to look. And uh, it, it seems like sensationalizing things is often a good way to do that. So I, th I, think, I think they tend in that direction. That's obviously not a universal statement, but there are uh, temptations for the media in that direction that many of them succumb to. Well, another concept that um, Rusty Reno talks about uh, many in government of disliking is the term triage. He says some people speak of triage as if it's a moral failure, yet we're always doing triage of some sort every day of our lives, aren't we? I suppose. I mean, I don't think that um, in, in the medical world of the United States, we're often, you know, explicitly triaging who's going to live and who's going to die. True. At some point, I will say this, you know, in an intensive care setting, you know, you get, if you had, for example, a patient with advanced cancer uh, that was not curable and the cancer is starting to affect more and more organs, sooner or later, you might say, you know, additional attempts at prolonging life are just futile and, sure. uh, and, and they're not gaining much and, and they're accompanied by a lot of suffering. And so, you know, we don't want to do this anymore. And, and so there's that kind of thing that, that necessarily goes on, you know, with mortality being 100%, right? So I, I don't, but I don't think we're often saying this guy gets a ventilator, that guy doesn't get a ventilator of, right. of our own accord in, in the medical world. That's usually a, a patient 
uh, decision. Uh, we do triaging all the time when it comes to um, who gets, you know, who in the emergency department are you going to see first? Are you going to see the guy with the right. on the hand or are you going to see the guy with crushing substernal chest pain? Uh, you know, some things are obvious and I, I don't think uh, anybody would, would disagree with those things. And then there's, I guess, one, one final way that we, we triage, and, and I, I do believe that we should be doing this, and that's where do we, where do we spend public money? Yes. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm in public health, and I'm in the business of making recommendations for where we spend public money. And I can tell you that, uh, well, for example, if you look at uh, the recommendations for meningococcal B vaccine, you know, they have estimated uh, that to give it to all uh, college freshmen would cost about $9.4 million per year of someone's life saved for a year to buy a wow. year. $9.4 million. And so, you know, should we, should we try to get everybody vaccinated with this vaccine? It's against a disease that's very, very rare. It's a relatively expensive vaccine, about 300 bucks. And the immunity probably lasts two, three years. Uh, should we, should we spend this kind of money? And, you know, my answer is no, uh, this is public money we're talking about. And that public money can be used to better effect on on other saving our lives. It's, it's really it's not being stingy. It's spending the money someplace else that it's going to have a better impact. Yeah, I I, I don't think that um, ethics or our faith require us to uh, to discard prudence. And with that, we're going to take a break here on Doctor Doctor and be back with more shortly here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, outside the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Paul Cieslak. And uh, this episode I thought of entitling, uh, How Long, O Lord, How Long? Because it brings in both to mind uh, Lent and some of the readings, as well as the social distancing. And the kids, I think, are asking that question much more than the adults. I, I know some adults who are very pleased with the social distancing because they're introverts. So a quote that I have here, Paul, uh, first, though, comes from Dr. Tony Fauci, head of infectious disease at the National Institutes of Health. And he, and he basically says that uh, there's a good chance that this disease, COVID, will be a seasonal disease. But uh, there's a chance that it will peak again in the fall and that we need to be prepared. So my question for you is, how will we be better prepared as a country for another rise of COVID cases compared to what's going on now? Yeah, great question. I, I think, first of all, uh, we're all prepared a little bit better to do social distancing. We know what it means. We know what it entails. Um, you know, a lot of uh, workplaces have gotten serious about telework options and making those kinds of things available. You know, in my own office, we had kind of uh, practiced some teleworking previously, but uh, we hadn't we hadn't done it to the degree that we've been doing it here, you know, for long periods of time where we're learning how to conduct regular business and, and keep things moving with people working out of their own homes. And I, th I think that's happening in a lot of workplaces around the country. Uh, perhaps most importantly in the healthcare setting, you know, because healthcare is is where sick people go, and uh, healthcare workers, should they get infected, are likely to expose highly vulnerable populations because that's who goes to see a doctor, right? And you know, teleworking may may eventually make up. 50% of, of a primary care practice. I, I wow. think that's entirely possible. So, uh, so those things will already be in place. And uh, hopefully, uh, by the fall, we won't have shortages of things like PPE and, uh, you know, alcohol-based hand sanitizers and, and the things that we need in order to do the frequent cleaning. Uh, so I think, I think we'll, be, we'll be better set up. People will be more prepared to have some of their gatherings virtually to be gathering in smaller groups and things like that. So I know like Andrew in his practice has the um, nasal lavage test available. Having more tests available in the fall, will we then practice a different amount of social distancing if that happens because we can do better contact tracing and quarantining? Well, that's our hope. You know, here in our discussions in Oregon, uh, we've been talking about how much social distancing is necessary to keep that transmission rate down to a manageable level. We, we don't think we're going to be able to get it down to zero. So, you know, there's always going to be somebody who slips through and, uh, and 
you know, with, with a test that's only 70% sensitive, you know, we know there are going to be people who are, have COVID out there that, that we missed, that we haven't detected, and they're capable of transmitting it to other people. You have a small percentage of cases that might be transmissible before the people even get symptoms. Right. We think that percentage is small, but it's real. Uh, so we won't be able to get it to zero, and, and we don't want to set our sights uh, on, on zero transmission. But if we can maintain enough social distancing that our case counts don't get to an unmanageable level, you know, a level manageable by existing healthcare systems, then I, th- I think we will be uh, doing what we can. You, you had mentioned that 70% sensitivity. I've gotten that question from a lot of patients. Is that kind of for the CDC test or is that for some of the commercial or do we even know because these are all new? <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, to a large degree, we don't know. That is, I'm citing the information that came from early testing in the United States, which is CDC test. Uh, you know, I'm not expecting that, that a lot of the other tests are going to be a lot better than that. As I said earlier, the, the, the problem may not be in the test itself. It may be in the specimen that we're collecting. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can't get around that with a better test. I've, so, I've seen a couple of patients where they have one or two negative tests and they test positive on a uh, bronch specimen. You right. The, the lower respiratory tract specimens, you know, your sputum or your endotracheal aspirate or your bronchoalveolar lavage are uh, thought to be a little more sensitive, at least, you know, maybe in the 80% range as measured against um, somebody who ever tests positive on, on uh, who's had a lot of specimens collected. So where in the respiratory tract does this virus tend to lodge? Well, there are specific receptors for it that tend to be concentrated in the uh, lower respiratory tract, that is below the level of the tracheal bifurcation. Um, so, you know, down in the bronchi. Yes. Uh, to, a, to a lesser degree, they, they live in the nasopharynx and in the nose. And so, you know, your nasal wash is thought to be close to a nasopharyngeal swab in terms of sensitivity, you know, in the 60 to 70% range. Now, if you cough before you do it, is that more likely to bring virus up into the nasopharynx? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. If you can cough up a good sputum from below, you know, that's thought to give you that 80% sensitivity that we were looking for. Okay. So the key question here to get at how long, oh Lord, how long to social distance is what kind of calculus will you and other public health officials use to determine when we can lighten up on social distancing? Well, well, calculus is being a little generous in terms of the, uh, <laughs> the science. Um, you know, we, we are trying to use the best uh, data that we have, uh, but, but there's a lot of judgment that, that's involved with uh, making these decisions. But uh, I, th- I think I talked to you last time about the concept of r naught, the uh, basic yes. reproductive rate of a disease. And, and if each case causes more than one additional case, then the counts are going to continue to rise. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can suppress transmission so that each case produces, on average, uh, less than one additional case, then case counts will start to fall. Well, we've been doing all this social distancing. And if we can see uh, hospital or hospital, hospitalizations from COVID-19 start to fall, then I think we can conclude that we have pushed our knot down below one. Uh, I mentioned hospitalizations because I think they're a more reliable barometer than our case counts, which are so influenced by the availability of testing. You know, most cases who end up in the hospital are going to get a test and uh, and you don't get hospitalized unless you, you know, have a disease of a certain severity. So I think that's a stable indicator. So I'd keep my eye on the hospitalizations. And when they start trending down, then I think it's fair to say we probably have gotten our knot down below one, which is where we want to get it. Now, how much social distancing do we need to maintain in order to keep it below one? Like maybe we've gotten it down to way below one. And all we really need to do is keep it down a little below one. So, so maybe we could loosen up on, on some of the social distancing. You know, we're approaching summer, so we're going to get kind of an automatic uh, school closure for a while. Uh, and then, you know, maybe we'll be able to let uh, a lot of people, if not everyone, go back to work and, uh, and continue to advise, for example, that you take yourself out of the workplace at the first sign of any respiratory illness and uh, and we test, you know, as testing capability ramps up, we test, you know, right away and uh, and find out whether they need to stay out of work or not. So what I'm getting at is that the social distancing is going to involve um, a lot of teleworking and then and then more rapid exclusion of people from work uh, once they develop symptoms and, uh, you know, 
more more testing and and cohorting of patients in hospital or so long term care settings, uh, just a variety of different measures that we can do that will each of which will push down the R not a little bit and keep it below uh, a level where our healthcare system is getting overwhelmed. Do, do we anticipate, uh, and, and I know we've kind of hinted at this before, that the warmer weather in the summer would even lower that R not with no changes? I mean, just hopefully the virus lasts for a shorter time on fomites and whatnot. Well, again, this is this is one of those, you know, part science, part guesswork. Uh, we hope so. Um, other Many other coronaviruses are seasonal. The SARS coronavirus, um, didn't last long enough for us to find out whether it was seasonal or not. The MERS coronavirus persists, uh, but that's in Saudi Arabia. I don't know what their seasons are like. It's not persisted in much of the rest of the world. Um, so will this coronavirus be seasonal? You know, I hope so, but but I don't know so, to be honest with you. How long do we want to see the cases or hospitalizations decrease before any lightening up on social distancing is wise? Well, good question. I, I think it depends on where you are. I mean, if you're in a place where it never got out of control, where your hospitals were never being overwhelmed, then, you know, you, you might be good as soon as you start to see a trend downward. Um, if you're in a place like New York City, where they really have been uh, up against the wall, uh, you might want to see cases go down quite a bit to, to some level where you can uh, give some of your healthcare workers a break, you know, and be well below uh, 100% census in your hospital before you lighten up. I wonder if some governors are going to make decisions based on the worst cities in their state. Would that be um, a wise way to make a decision based on the, the worst outbreak in a state? Um, I, you know, I think each state's going to have to consider, you know, to what degree do I need to make recommendations that are statewide or can we make recommendations right. that are, uh, you know, more local, uh, you know, push it down to the local level rather than have it be at the state level. Uh, so, you know, that if you had a big city whose experience was considerably different from that of the rest of your state, uh, you might want to do it that way. I think one way to get at the question about when can patients go back for typical visits would be to consider it in light of dentists. Because from what I've heard, just about everything they do leads to some kind of aerosolization. What do you think will have to be in place before dentists can safely see patients in most parts of the country? Right. I think, I think you know, we would want to see the disease rates trending down. And then I think we would want to um, uh, have the availability of, of rapid testing for anybody who has any symptoms. Uh, you know, that's not going to stop the potential transmission from people who are pre-symptomatic or who don't develop any symptoms. There's a percentage of people who, who we know get COVID without developing any symptoms. We don't have a great handle on that because we don't often test people who have no symptoms. Uh, but the dentists are going to have to employ, you know, what personal protective equipment uh, is practical in their settings. We may want to uh, undertake something like uh, temperature scanning, uh, you know, before you get into the dentist chair for everybody. That'll give us a little added measure of um, confidence that someone isn't infected. It's, it's far from perfect. Not everybody with COVID has a fever. What would but, be the sensitivity of a temperature over 100, Paul, if you had to guess? Sensitivity for patient having? 40%. How about specificity? Oh boy, just about very low. <laughs> very low. Yeah. Okay. So there's there's no good way that we can screen someone without really a sample of some bodily fluids to to check for seroconversion, right? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, not I mean, seroconversion implies that you're getting a blood sample, but uh, yeah, yeah, you would need some tests because you know people can have no symptoms at all, and you can't see the virus. So there's there's no way to to make it a uh, zero probability. By what date would you guess, I know this is a guess, that uh, over half of America, especially non-urban America, would be able to loosen up on social distancing if uh, the Saturday, the day before Palm Sunday, turns out to be the peak of cases in the country? As, and we're recording this Tuesday of Holy Week, so it looks like we've got three days lower than that right now. Okay, so if, if that turns out to be the peak of cases, yeah, then I then I'm gonna say uh, mid-May. Mid-May, and what would the first loosening ups look like? Would they be opening restaurants and bars? Uh, would they be allowing gatherings of 
25, 50 or 250? What do, what do you think? Um, you know, again, this is going to vary state by state. Right. In, in Oregon, uh, one of the governor's executive orders closed specified places of business. And, uh, you know, we, we could pick and choose among those businesses and say, these can go back to work now. Okay. Uh, restaurants might not be the first place and, and, and bars might not be the first one to reopen because, uh, you know, the purpose of those businesses almost is to socialize right, right. <laughs> uh, and 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 to talk to lots of people in in close quarters whereas the purpose of a lot of other businesses is not necessarily uh, social so um, I would expect that the, the businesses that aren't explicitly in the in you know to to provide social atmospheres for people are going to be able to uh, to go back to business first and then sometime after that uh, you know your restaurants and your other places like that. And what you would, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and what about hairstylists? We are actually purchasing a, a set of clippers to use on our kids. I mean, that's pretty close quarters. Will they be up there with restaurants and bars? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I guess I don't know enough about hairstyling. You know, that just keeping in mind, though, that uh, your risk of transmission is going to have to do with uh, how many people you have contact with in a given day. And, and in this circumstance, you're, you're most worried about the people at work, right, about the occupational exposure. Right. Because, you know, if, if you go into a barber shop or a hair salon, you know, you're going to be exposed to one person. But if you are the barber or the uh, hairdresser, then you're going to be exposed to many people in one day. And I don't know uh, enough about to, to comment on the nature of their exposure. It seems to me that most of the time they'll be behind you, which is probably a good thing yes. for them. I, I would take those things into consideration. Let me leave it at that. Well, and I, I know it's got to be hard to kind of pick winners and losers out of different businesses, but as far as like groups that are higher risk, what to what extent do you think that could be part of the relaxation of the rules where most people can kind of start going back to normal life, but if you're high risk, you should still get your groceries delivered? You know, is there a role for that? I, I think so. I, I think that's going to be a big part of it. Now, part of the problem is that the risk groups are defined pretty broadly right now. I, I might have said this on the last show, but, uh, you know, I, I looked at all the people over 60 in the state of Oregon, and I looked at uh, adults under 60 who had some sort of chronic medical condition, and I'm at 61% of Oregon's population now. Uh, and wow. if you, yeah, and if you start adding in, okay, let's take all the incarcerated people, and let's take uh, maybe healthcare workers should all be considered uh, potentially high risk, and and add in and add in these groups, and and pretty soon you're talking, you know, <laughs> almost everybody. Yeah, what's high risk even mean? Right. So, so you know, we would we would have to be judicious about uh, which people do we warn, you know, to take extra precautions. What's your best guess on what social distancing might look like or need to look like in July and August of this year? You know, I, I guess it is my hope that uh, most people would be back to work and that um, we would mostly be employing things that, that uh, doesn't come with a big economic cost, like we're not shaking hands together. Maybe we're still avoiding some of the larger groups of people, you know, maybe we can have mass, but, uh, but we don't have coffee and donuts afterwards where, you know, the express purpose of it is to socialize <laughs> and, and we're still doing a lot of things uh, virtually online, you know, using um, what we're using right now, which is zoom. Zoom. So Paul, we are Catholic. This episode is going to air on Holy Saturday morning. And on that day, um, we reflect on Jesus being in the tomb. And I remember several years ago, as I was reflecting on this, it finally connected in my brain why we have devotions to Our Lady, the, the Mother of God, on Saturdays, because she was the only one on Holy Saturday who was actually holding a vigil, believing that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. I mean, virtually nobody else did. So I'm curious, what kind of reflections do you have in seeing how, uh, well, as Pope Benedict said, uh, the Virgin Mary is continuously present and operative in the life of the church today? How does that fit in with you, coronavirus, and Holy Saturday? Wow, great question. Uh, you know, I think Holy Saturday is, um, is, is a time for reflection and uh contemplation it's it's a real uh, still time you know the the holy thursday and good friday services are over and we're all kind of anticipating 
Easter Sunday we're, we're in, or, the, or the Saturday night vigil. And, um, and, and so we're trying to prepare ourselves uh, for the resurrection. I'm not sure exactly what your question is getting at, but... Uh, well, it you know. seems like the whole society now is kind of living in a tomb of stillness with this social distancing. Uh, that's yeah. That's that's a, a astute observation or a good metaphor for uh, what we're going through here now. But uh, we have to remember that uh, the joy of the resurrection is upon us. I mean, we're not we're we're we, we know what the what the end of the story is that um, that goodness wins in the end, and that uh, our, our Lord is going to be there for us. We we have Him until the end of the world. So I I, I think it's a good thing to keep that in mind and to to know that suffer that we might, uh, we're going to get through this eventually, and uh, we're going to be praising God in the end. What are the signs of hope that you see now, even though we're in the midst of the pandemic, medically speaking? Um, or societally well, speaking? Well, societally speaking, I, you know, it, I can point to a lot of things. I mean, I do see families hanging out together, going for walks together down the street. And I wondered whether, you know, they were not doing that before, or maybe I, I just didn't notice them. I, uh, you know, the 7 p.m. clanging for uh, healthcare professionals. I don't know if that's going on in your neighborhood, but what? I was, I was biking home from the office the other day. Yeah, this is a thing. Ah. Uh, I was, and, and uh, I'm getting home at like seven and, and I hear all these people clanging pots and pans. And I was like, what the, what is going <laughs> on here? But apparently it's become a thing that at 7 p.m. people, people go outside and bang their pots and pans for the healthcare workers who are putting themselves on the line uh, fighting COVID-19. So that's, that's kind of a shot in the arm. You know, medically speaking, I think that um, there's a lot more appreciation for the importance of personal protective equipment. I think uh, we all have a better appreciation for uh, the role of FOMATES, you know, in, in transmitting the fact that you can put viruses on other articles and contract them uh, through that means. So I, I think we're, we're taking that more seriously. You know, healthcare acquired infections have been huge, a huge problem uh, ever since healthcare came around. And, uh, and I think healthcare workers are, are learning a lot about how they can try to protect themselves and others from those. So th those are positive things to come out of it. I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. Um, but, uh, but the Lord can bring good out of anything. And there's, there's hope at the end, right? Because this won't go on forever. There is hope at the end. I mean, I, I, it's hard to know when it's going to end, but, uh, but, but this too shall pass. I, I think that's worth, worth remembering, especially with uh, Tom's kind of metaphor there about being in the tomb. I mean, we're, we are alone right now, by definition, with the social distancing, but there is hope. And, and ultimately, ultimately, it will be better. Hopefully, we'll have learned something in, in this time. Amen to that. All. Like, thank you very much for being with us for this episode of Dr. Doctor, Holy Week, Holy Saturday edition. God bless you and all the good work you do. Thanks. God be with you all. With Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. The question was, which two countries were the only countries in the world at the beginning of Holy Week that had more cases of COVID-19 than New York State has? And the uh, answer is Italy and Spain. So people have been who have been following the news probably appreciate that, but the U.S. has quickly became a, a major a major place. And we do and, have the third largest population in the world, so part of it is is just the population. But uh, per capita, we still have less cases per capita than Italy and Spain do, and we really don't know how many cases China has. Uh, reported of their of the true number. But the question I want to ask uh, Andrew is he's been on the news locally, both television and print media, uh, with regard to acquiring the nasal lavage test for COVID. So how is use of that going with your patients? Uh, it's going well. I wish I had thought of the idea. I, I heard about other people doing it. And I think everybody in healthcare right now is kind of MacGyvering their own personal situation to make sure that we can care for our patients in the best way possible. But basically what we're doing is uh, we're trying to get a specimen from the very top back part of the nose where it connects to your mouth and we don't have the swabs to go and get it. And so what we're doing is we're squirting sterile saline up there and hoping to catch some sample and get it into a specimen cup. So the- How do you get it into the cup? <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's a t difficult thing. And I, we were joking today. Um, we usually have the patient 
whoever is bringing them or driving with them assist. Uh, we, we pass through a little kit that we've made with a bag of gloves in there to help the patient hold the specimen cup because really the patient has to occlude one nostril and squirt a, a syringe of sterile saline into the other nostril. And whoever is holding a specimen cup, that is the definition of true love. So um, th does the sample come out of their nose or their mouth? Either and both. Um, what we're trying to get, and that's what I try and tell patients, is we want to get the cells from way back in there into this cup. And so a lot of times, naturally, people taste it and either drip it or spit it into the cup. You know, I'm thinking of when my kids were little and they had stuffy noses as infants, you'd take, you know, you'd squirt the saline and just use that sucker ball and you oh, could get yeah. all kinds of stuff, but you don't do that. No, and there, some people are doing it that way, but one of the things we're thinking of too is trying to make sure we can keep our staff safe. Sure. This is a procedure that creates a lot more aerosol. How uh, many of these have you spines. done and how many have been positive? So, so far we've only done six. Oh. One of the things that we're doing is we, we have a lot of supplies, but we're trying to follow the CDC guidelines to use them for the right people. So Any no positives. positives yet. No positives. But, well, thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast and radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. And be sure to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to your favorite podcast app or at Redeemer, RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.